A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We have shows coming up in Pittsburgh and San Francisco and a special show about science fiction at the 92Y's part of New York Super Week. Check out storycollider.org for times and tickets. This week's story is from John Rennie. The story was recorded in September 2014 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Back uh, at the end of 1989 was a very exciting time for me. I was still just learning the ropes around Scientific American. I had just started working there as one of the editors on staff a few months before. So it was still possible for me to be surprised when I was walking past uh, the desk of the administrative assistant uh, for the magazine, a lovely, aristocratic, sometimes haughty woman named Adele, And I looked at her desk, and I was surprised by something that I saw there. Now, mostly on her desk were lots of stacks of very ordinary business correspondence, very ordinary business correspondence, uh, reprints of different papers, manuscripts, manila folders, the kind of things you would expect to find there. Um, But there was one stack that was very, very different. It the papers making it up were lots of different odd shapes and textures, and it wasn't all typed. Some of it was typed, some of it was apparently written in felt marker, and some of it looked like it might have even been written in pencil. And so I asked Adele, what is this? And she said, oh, this? Oh, utter madness! These fools keep sending us their crazy theories about physics and dinosaurs, and they expect us to publish it. I mean, honestly, none of it's been peer-reviewed. It's utterly preposterous. I said, really? You, you get a lot of this? And she says, oh, boxes of it arrive every week. I, 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 honestly, we just throw it away. I mean, what else could you possibly do with it? And I said, I, I, I'll take it. Because, look... Everybody who's involved in science writing gets some of these kinds of letters. If you write, there are always a certain number of people out there with unusual ideas who see that you write about these topics, and they decide to send their ideas to you because they think they'll, they'll find maybe a, a sympathetic audience that will help the rest of the world pay attention to them. Um, now, a lot of science writers get very irritated by these, but back in those days, I'm not proud to admit, I loved seeing these things, really because I just kind of, if only in the privacy of my own mind, enjoyed making fun of these people and the crazy ideas that would show up. So I wanted to get my hand on as many of these kinds of things as I could, and now I had stumbled into the mother load, Scientific American's own stream of crazy mail. So I, I did take what Adele had, and in fact, a few months later in 1990, I actually volunteered to take on the job of editing the letters to the editor's section purely so that I would have as access to as much of this mail as I possibly, possibly could. You know, it was 
the beginning of the 90s, as we all know, was a crazy time anyway. Uh, Tamagotchis and oxygen bars, people wearing their, their pants backward. And that's, that's not even getting into the, the dark kinds of things, um, uh, you know, like the first attack on the World Trade Center or the, the shootout in Waco between David Koresh and the Branch Davidian cult or the Spice Girls. So... So there was no shortage of craziness in the air, but what I was getting from these letters at Scientific American was fantastically satisfying. I mean, there's nothing that prepares you for letters like the one from this one fellow who said, why hasn't anybody thought of taking a nuclear weapon and putting it inside a coal seam and setting it off and then just pulling out the diamonds with a backhoe? Sometime soon, someone's going to put a nuke inside a coal mine in West Virginia and set it off. And when they do, I want to be there to see it. (laughs) I did not want to be there to see it. (laughs) Now, there were great patterns that would show up in this sort of crazy mail. Of course, um, for example, as Adele had said, there was uh, no shortage of people who had uh, different sorts of physics theories. And the interesting thing about their physics theories is that they all justified faster than light travel. Um, (laughs) All of them. Um, They were were very polite toward Albert Einstein, with whom they, they said they Uh, respectfully disagreed, although they recognized he was a great man. Um, uh, But they also made it very clear that uh, all of those other physicists who were responsible for quantum mechanics were a bunch of jerks. uh, but, uh, but, you know, there were, there were lots of other unusual patterns. For example, there is a surprisingly large number of people out there who have apparently independently hit on the idea that the reason why we had great big dinosaurs in the past was because gravity used to be weaker. And that there isn't plate tectonics moving around the continents. No, it's that the Earth is expanding and just leaving more ocean between them. But, you know, even so, there are a lot of these, these ideas still. There were, there's no way to be prepared for some of the kinds of ideas. I mean, for example, one of my, my favorite very steady correspondents was a, a guy named Moses um, who was in Las Vegas. No kidding, his name was Moses. And, uh, and he, 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 well, his theories were, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but I, they might seem more like schizophrenic hallucinations. Um, but but uh, honestly, he, he was so cheerful about this as he was describing them. He wasn't tormented by this sort of peculiar madness at all. In fact, he, he had such a folksy, happy writing style, uh, th- th- and, and, and it was also so, so pithy that I, whenever I would read it, I would just hear the voice of the late radio announcer Paul Harvey in my head. It was, hello, neighbors. 5,000-mile alien spaceship blew up in the skies back in Egyptian times. Radiation made the crocodiles big. There's your brontosaurus. <laughs> Babylonians knew the aliens. They called them angels. They're with us today, men in black. <laughs> so, so for the next five years, I continued to read and collect this mail. And, of course, I couldn't keep all of it, but I, I would have to throw out the, the, the most of, of what was coming in. But I would save the best of these letters. And even so, I still had managed to amass about eight cubic feet of 
choice crazy mail that was sitting in cardboard boxes in my office. Um, and, and I somehow had this sort of dream that I was going to do something with it someday. I don't know, I, maybe write a book about it, maybe I could actually write, get some sort of dissertation about this, maybe, maybe I could donate it to a university someplace, because surely inside all of this, uh, there had to be some sort of insight uh, in, that you could get into human psychology and what would maybe motivate people to get involved in science. Because I have to say that my feelings toward these people had changed. I used to mock them, but by this time, I actually had started to kind of sympathize them and, and really kind of love them. Because I felt in a lot of ways, these people were motivated by something that was like a genuinely scientific impulse, in that they had contemplated the world and they had arrived at something that they thought was a real fundamental truth about the universe, and they wanted to share that truth with no hope of, of gain for themselves with the rest of humanity. The problem is they were often just terribly misguided and misinformed, and, and for all that they saw themselves as being somebody like Galileo or Tesla and being that, that lonely figure who transforms science from the fringe, they often didn't seem to get that it wasn't being a lonely outcast figure on the fringe that made Galileo and Tesla right. <laughs> so as I say, I did this for about five years, collecting a lot of these things, but you know, there are just so many designs for perpetual motion machines you can actually see before you do actually start to get a little bit bored with some of these things. And during this time, I had actually been uh, named the, the, the new the editor-in-chief of Scientific American, so I had a lot of other things to do. So I passed on all these, uh, these uh, letter-sorting jobs uh, to my assistant, Sonia, and to uh, Corey, another one of the editors on staff, and let them take this on. And that's how things stood back in the spring of 1985 when we got the letter from the Unabomber. Yes. In 1985, the Unabomber, then identity still unknown, was in year 17 of his one-man campaign to try to convince society that it should abandon all technology if it was to save itself. And he had done this by mailing and planting bombs that had actually already injured 23 people and killed three, one of them just a couple of weeks before this. And uh, the reason that this letter came to our attention was not, well, the way you might think that we would come to be aware of it. Rather, um, around this time, the Unabomber, although he had done an amazing job of hiding his identity for all of those years, was starting to reach out. And he was writing letters to the New York Times and to the Washington Post because he was really trying to convince them to publish his gigantic manifesto. Um, and one day, in one of these letters to the New York Times, he actually included a photocopy of a letter that he said he had just sent to Scientific American. And the FBI, seeing the photocopy inside the New York Times, ran to Scientific American's mailroom at four in the morning and tossed it, turned it upside down, looking for the letter that they hoped they could intercept in hopes that they would be able to find clues to who the Unabomber was. But they didn't find it. Apparently, it hadn't arrived yet. 
And so the next morning, the chairman of Scientific American met me in my office, and he by this time was holding a photocopy of the photocopy that the New York Times had of that letter, and he's showing it to me and explaining the situation, and I in turn took that photocopy, and I showed it to my assistant Sonia and Corey, the other editor who was handling the mail, and I explained the situation to them, and I said, now, be on the lookout for this letter. Because when this arrives, and this could arrive here at any time, we have to make sure this immediately goes to the FBI. And Sonia looked at this letter for a moment, and she said, this letter? Well, I think I opened this letter two or three days ago. I, I put it in with all of the other crazy mail on Corey's desk. That's right. The Unabomber's letter wasn't crazy enough to stand out from the rest of the crazy mail. But you see, that's because when the Unabomber was sending these letters, it's not like he was signing them, your friend, the Unabomber. No, uh, Unabomber was, of course, a nickname that the FBI had given him. He would sign his letters FC, which was very cryptic. We eventually discovered that it was supposed to stand for Freedom Club. Um, and also, this letter, it wasn't making threats. It wasn't threatening anyone. He was, frankly, it was, it was just commenting about uh, that indeed he still did believe that uh, a technological society was a, was a very bad idea. And uh, he, he was really uh, just pointing out that he had read in Scientific American a couple of different articles, uh, one about the construction of new super powerful particle accelerators and uh, one about research into the genetics of violent behavior that he felt only confirmed his ideas uh, that uh, society was going the wrong way by continuing to embrace technology. So for me, as the editor of a magazine, I had mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, he's a reader. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's frankly never a good feeling to know that a homicidal bomber knows your name and watches your work and knows where you work. And it's really not a good idea when you realize that the magazine you are working for in 1995 is at that moment an American publishing institution that is celebrating proudly its 150th year of serving as the premier chronicle of technological progress and scientific achievement. You can feel the crosshairs coming around you. When you tell a staff full of people that a mad bomber is reading their work, the room gets very quiet. Now, of course, we had a bunch of discussions with the FBI about this, as you could imagine, and this is where I had my great idea. Because as I said to the representatives, I said, listen, we got one letter from the Unabomber and didn't know it. Maybe it's possible that he's written to us in the past and we didn't know, and I've got eight cubic feet of old crazy mail in my office <laughs> if anybody wants to go through that. And the FBI said, Yes, we will. <laughs> and they brought in the hand carts, and they stacked up all of the boxes, and they started to take them out of my office. And as they're rolling out of my office, I said, I, I will get that back, right? <laughs> and they said, oh, yes. <laughs> but I had other things to think about, because, of course, the important issue was protecting the people on the staff.
because as far as we knew at any moment, you know, maybe we could be targeted. The next thing from the Unabomber might not be a benign letter at all. And so we asked the, the FBI for advice about trying to recognize what, what might a mail bomb look like. And their advice to us was, and you might want to remember this, they said, try to avoid opening any letters or packages that are coming from people or addresses you don't know. <laughs> and I said, do you know that as a magazine, opening mail and packages from people we don't know is roughly 90% of what we use the U.S. Post Office for? Uh, well, so the FBI did not have a big X-ray scanner to lend us, and uh, Scientific American wasn't springing for all of this, so the best that I could do was to just tell the people on the staff, uh, don't open anything that you're not really comfortable with opening. And, uh, and then we will just collect anything that you're not comfortable with, and we will give that over to the police, and they will make sure it's opened under the right circumstances, and, uh, and that way it'll be safe. Except I knew that that was never going to be a very practical solution. And quite frankly, it bothered me deeply that, that at any moment I could be sitting in my nice office, and I would hear an explosion going off down the hall. Because I realized that of all the people who worked at Scientific American and who wrote stuff that might potentially irritate the Unabomber, I didn't open my mail. Sonia opened my mail. Corey opened my mail. Other people were going to get blown to bits in that case. So we would gather up all of the somewhat suspicious mail at night, and in the interest of expediency, I would just make sure then that and would wait around till 8 or 9 o'clock at night until pretty much everyone was gone, and I would sit down with the stacks of that, and I would open it myself. And I, I had plenty of time uh, while looking at those stacks of mail um, to realize that I, I had been hoping for crazy mail, and I had gotten crazy mail. And I started to realize that those people that I loved out there with their crazy theories, that there really was a kind of darker side that could also sometimes emerge when your great dreams of sharing your brilliant insights with humanity were frustrated and thwarted at every turn. Now, obviously, I stand before you, hale and hearty. I'm perfectly well, and in fact, we never did get anything else uh, from the Unabomber. And in April of 1986, uh, the Unabomber was indeed apprehended, and we now know his name is Ted Kaczynski, and I'm happy to say that he is serving life sentence without possibility of parole. Uh, and so, sort of a happy ending of the story that way. But of course, whatever did happen to my big archive of crazy mail? Well, you won't be surprised to discover that I never did get that back. I asked after it several different times, but uh, no, it, it never came back my way. So I don't know. I mean, maybe the FBI destroyed it, or maybe they, they actually did turn it into the cornerstone for some new forensic science of crazy mail. I would like to think that something good came out of all that. I did get an answer to one question I had asked. I had been, been asking them whether they ever did find any older crazy mail from the Unabomber in there. And they said, no, no, you, uh, you didn't have anything else in there from him. 
But they said, you know, it's a funny thing. Did you know you had a letter in there from David Koresh? Thank you. That was John Rennie. John is an award-winning science writer, editor, and lecturer based in New York City. For 15 years, he served as editor-in-chief of Scientific American. He is the editorial director of science for McGraw-Hill Education. Since 2009, he has also been an adjunct instructor in the Graduate Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute of New York University. His television and radio appearances include PBS's NewsHour, ABC World News, the History Channel special Clash of the Cavemen, Discovery's Apocalypse How, NPR Science Friday, and many other programs. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org. We have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you love the podcast, please consider donating at storycollider.org slash donate. This event was part of the Brooklyn Brain Jam, a collaboration of Nerd Night, Kevin Geeks Out, The Big Quiz Thing, and us. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Avalith. Initial help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Bell House for hosting the show, to the Brooklyn Brain Jam for being an awesome afternoon, and to PR people for being the only ones to send me crazy mail. Thanks for listening. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.